All right, we got, we got 40 chapters to cover tonight. We're going to read the whole thing. No, uh, here's what we're going to do. It, it, as I was saying earlier to Father Joseph, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And so we're not going to go crazy and try to cover everything. Uh, we're going to talk about Melchizedek for a few minutes, um, most likely for about 40 minutes until I realize I'm out of time, and then, um, and then we'll have to do Abraham and the rest of it in five minutes. But, um, so we're going to start there. We're going to touch on, on Abraham and Isaac. We're going to touch on Joseph, and we're going to go home. Okay, how does that sound? We won't be able to cover everything, but... All right. Um, we finished last time uh, talking about the genealogies, right? And how uh, the, the genealogy is reversed. Do you remember this? Okay, the sons of Noah are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Or Japheth. Okay? And you remember we talked about the sin of Ham, be seen his father's nakedness. Okay, a, uh, a way in, in Bible language to talk about seeing in the, in the full biblical sense of the way. His mother. Okay, what's the sin called? Incest, but there's a particular thing. Anyways, and the offspring of that relationship. The offspring of the, that relationship, Canaan. And so right there in the text, Ham, the father of Canaan. Ham did this, remember he's the father of Canaan. And then as soon as Noah wakes up, who does he curse? Canaan. The offspring is the one that receives the curse, not because Ham doesn't fall into sin and in in a sense calls down the curse upon himself, but as I said er, uh, last time, like father, like son. Okay? And this text is being written by whom? Traditionally, Moses. And where is Moses going? To the promised land. And who's living in the promised land? The Canaanites. Okay? They know what God has prepared for these people. They know their history. Okay? Uh, And so we get that text, that interpretation of the curse falls upon Canaan, who will then become, truly, become servants, eventually, slaves to the Israelite people as they conquer them. Okay? So then, we get into the genealogy there in chapter 10. And the genealogy, as I said, is reversed. Instead of listing oldest to youngest, Ham, uh, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, instead it flips it around and does Japheth, verse 6, Ham, and then in verse 15 it throws Canaan in there as a brother. Why? He's a half-brother. Okay? And then Shem. So he lists Shem, the eldest, first. The key to the reason behind that, the key is that the name Shem means name. Shem is the one who has the name. And you remember, to, to have the name is to be the head of the family. Okay? Remember in the beginning, not in, in the beginning, but way back a while ago, when we were talking about Cain, or Cain, uh, yeah, Cain and his son, he built a city and named it after his son. Right? He was trying to make a name for himself. But Seth, the righteous line, called upon the name of the Lord. 
And through that, through submitting themselves to God, they themselves are given, in a sense, the name, right? And become the ruling family. And so you, you get that in the story of Noah and his son Shem. Shem is the eldest. He is the one who receives properly his inheritance as head of the family. He is the one of the name. And so we get in chapter 10 this reversal so that the last genealogy given is that of the name, the ones who have the name, the righteous line. And in the sto- in, in following that genealogy is what story? Babel. Babel. And following the story of Babel is the genealogy again of, of Shem, the one that has the name. Why is that? Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and few words. And as men migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and and bituum for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its name, with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Aha! Why are they building the tower? To make a name for themselves rather than calling upon the name of the Lord and receiving that name as an inheritance. Okay? So, like father, like son. Why did Ham do what he did? Because in that culture, to take another man's wife, to have relations with another man's wife, was a way of claiming his throne. I gave you that reference to Second Kings last time. Did anyone go and read that? <sighs> Come on, friends. I don't know. I can't give it to you again right off the top of my head, but it's in Second Kings. Anyways, it's all over the place. This happens also. Um, Reuben does this to his father, Jacob. Right? Reuben, the eldest of the twelve sons. Talk about someone who doesn't have his head screwed on straight. He's the eldest. He's going to receive the inheritance. And he goes and takes his father's concubine anyways. And therefore disinherits himself, loses the throne, the head of the family. And who takes his place? Judah. Judah. Exactly. So, why is the genealogy reversed? To highlight the fact of those who pretend, those that attempt to take the name rather than those who truly have the name. Those who are sons of God versus those who are sons of the devil, like father, like son. Okay? In chapter 11, verse 10, where that second genealogy of Shem starts, and you work your way down, those of you that have gone through salvation history with me before will know this, that at the end of that genealogy, in verse 27, we, met, we meet a man named Terah. And Terah is the father of Abram. Right? This is the genealogy of those who have the name. And Abraham, who will be, the Abram, who will become Abraham, is in that line. He is going to receive the blessing and receive the name, become head of the family. Okay? And so you'll see in chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go ahead. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make 
of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. There you go. He's going, God himself will lift up Abraham to make him head of the covenant family, not just because he's inheriting it in a, in a human manner, but because he has faith in God. And he has glorified God. He has called upon the name of the Lord, okay, which is the first thing he's going to do in his relationship here. He's going to go and call upon the name of the Lord. And therefore, God will make his name glorious upon the earth. Okay? Notice going back to chapter 11. Now the whole earth, verse 1. Now the whole earth, go ahead. Now the whole earth had one language and few words. And as men migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Okay. They migrated from where? From the east. Now, what other directional help have we been given in the book of Genesis so far? What other, what other times has the directions been mentioned? Yeah, exactly. In which direction were Adam and Eve cast? Toward the east. They were toward the east. And then, and then who was the next person we find out is sent further east? Cain is sent further east. East, the direction of east becomes the direction of sin. There's a reason for that. There was no possible way for them to head west. We'll talk about that in a second. But here... All of a sudden, the direction is reversed. And men migrate from the east. Okay, they start heading in the opposite direction. We're going to get two different groups of people that do this in these two chapters that we're discussing, chapter 11 and chapter 12. And just like we've seen a division between Shem's line and Canaan's line, we're going to see a division between these two groups of people and the two reasons why they're going about traveling in this direction. First of all, in chapter 11, what do we know about these people? They're bad people. They're people that are trying to make a name for themselves. They're grabbing something which is not theirs to take. And if this place over here is the place of salvation, and we've been heading toward the east this whole time, and now we have people that are going to come back in this direction and try to take something which is not theirs, what's the goal? What are they eventually trying to get to? Back to that place of salvation. But they're going to try to get there in the wrong way. Now, look at chapter 11, verse 27. Now, these are the descendants of Terah. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and, and, and uh, Haran. And Haran was the father of Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, God is going to come and call Abraham to a new place, to a place of salvation. Which direction do you think he's going to call him? Exactly. West is the place of salvation, the direction of salvation. Okay, now we've seen one trying to go there and take it by force. The other will now go there in faith. So take out that map, and I want you to find Ur of the Chaldees with me. If you look, here's your piece of paper, right here. So drop down like two inches and about an inch or two over, you'll see Elam. And then you'll see that, that, that circle there, that kind of, it's not really a circle, and it's Babylon kind of written to the side. See that? In, that? in the bottom of that circle, the second city up, you'll see I have underlined, it's very small, you'll see Ur there. Okay? Now, if you go from Ur, 
and draw a line directly west, what city do you hit, basically? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Hmm. And this is the exact place that God is calling Abraham. And in fact, the Jews believed that Jerusalem was the literal location of the Garden of Eden for reasons like this. Okay? And when Abraham gets there, what does he find? Chapter 12, verse 4 through 6. Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions which they had gathered, and the persons that had gotten Haran. And they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moriah. Okay, and so forth. What land is it? The land of Canaan. What do we know about Canaan in this story so far? Cursed. He's cursed. And what is the curse consistent? He is going to be a slave. And when is the last time you saw a slave that was also a landholder? No, I don't think so. And in fact, it, we're gonna, what I want you to do, if you've got a little piece of paper or something you can stick in your Bible... I want you to go, we're going to come right back to this text, so hold on to that. I need to get you to go get your paper over in the book of Hebrews. So go all the way to the end of your Bible, the book of Revelation, and work backwards till you find Hebrews. It's not too far back. To Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to ask you a question. God is going to give this land to Abraham. But it's not his land. It's the land of the Canaanites. Doesn't this seem a little unjust to you? That he's going to send them in there and say, you go and just rock these people, take their land, have no regard for them whatsoever. Does that sound like the God we worship? So what's going on here? Chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was to go. How is he supposed to receive this land? By faith. By faith as an inheritance. Which means what about the land he's going to be given? It belongs to his family by right. And he is going to receive it as an inheritance. And for good reason. If the faithful family of God, as we talked about way back when, stays near paradise, always wanting to be near the home of the Father, then when that family or members of that family come back in the opposite direction of exile, they're going to come back to the land which they lost in the beginning. The mountain of paradise. Jerusalem. Come back to Genesis and mark your Bible there in, in, in Hebrews because we've got to go back there a couple times. And I don't want to spend too much time looking at it or trying to find it. When he gets to that land, we don't have time to deal with, with the intricacies of the, of the story itself. He, he ends up going down to Egypt, unfortunately, taking a concubine, which begins somewhat of the downfall of Abraham. But when he returns back to the land in chapter 13... He comes back a very rich man, and Lot is there with him. And in verse 8, chapter 13, verse 8, Abraham said to Lot, 
Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and was and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. In the direction of Zoar, this was the... This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, there you go. He lifts up his eyes and he sees the land. And what does he behold? A land like paradise, the Garden of Eden. Okay, the Jordan Valley. Following upon that text in chapter 14, we get one of the more difficult chapters in Genesis. At least I've always found it difficult. And again, one of those boring ones that we usually skip over. In chapter 14, verse 1, go ahead. In the days of uh, Amphrat Raphael, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, Shed Orlam. Do you see why? Well, what do we do, friends, with our Bibles? We go, okay, that's enough. Maybe the next chapter will give us some insight into our spiritual life. Whenever we get to a difficult text, whenever we get to the genealogies, what are we going to do? It's there for a reason. Slow down and read them. And I just want to point out two things very quickly. That last guy we just stumbled over, Shedrolomer, king of Elam. Now hold on to that and go back to chapter 10, verse 21. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of of Shem, Elam. Elam was a son of Shem. And here, when Abraham goes into the land, the first thing he walks into is going to be a civil war. A civil war taking place between two parties. One party, a number of kings, who are part of that covenant line of Shem. And the other kings that are at war with them, take a look. Verse 2. These kings, the ones above, made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, and so, and so forth. Do you think these guys are going to be good? No. Kings of Sodom and Gomorrah? Probably not. Look back to chapter 10 again, verse 19. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. These are kings who are ruling over the lands of the Canaanites. They're Canaanite kings. And there is a war now, a civil war, that Abraham walks into the middle of as he walks into the land of his inheritance. And it's a war between those that are to be submissive, those that are to be slaves, and those that are to be the heads of the families. Okay, The chosen line, the line of, of Shem, and the line of Canaan. And why is there a war? Why is there a war? In verse 4, 12 years they had served Shedelomer. Right? Shedelomer is of that righteous line. 12 years they have served, they served him. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. In other words, the Canaanites who had served those of the covenant line now went into rebellion and caused a civil war in the Holy Land. And it's at this moment that God sends back Abraham, 
who is of the righteous line, who is going to be the one to receive the name, who is going to be the one to lead God's people so that he can set right that which is going on in the land of God in the Garden of Eden in Jerusalem. And when he goes there, it's a funny story. First, Shedelamar and, and the kings who were with him rock the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other guys. But then, when they do this, they end up taking Lot. Because remember, Lot went and dwelt near them. They end up taking Lot captive, one of their own kinsmen. And Abraham says, no, 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 no. Now you've overstepped your bounds. And he goes in there and he beats Shedelomer and takes Lot back. In, in verse 17, chapter 14, verse 17, right after the battle takes place, Abraham is shown to be the most powerful one in the land. He immediately goes to Melchizedek. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Shedelomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. And so forth. Okay, you can read that on your own. Now, who is this Melchizedek? There's been a lot of talk about, oh, who could Melchizedek be? Why is, it, why is there a debate about who Melchizedek is? It's the priesthood. That's right. Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, St. Paul says in the epistle to the Hebrews. Yeah, because St. Because Paul writes, he has no genealogy, no father, no mother, and so forth. But the church fathers have corrected those that have fallen into error, explaining he has a human father and a human mother. However, he has no human father or mother according to his soul, his, his priesthood. That priesthood descends from God alone. So who is Melchizedek? Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. If you look at verse 3, you'll see what Father Joseph is speaking of. He is without father or mother or genealogy, and is neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So the fathers of the church have always interpreted that. It's his ordination, okay, which has no origin. It's an ordination in God. Verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, go ahead. Met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, and has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay, so according to his name, first he is king of righteousness. Melchizedek. Zedek in Hebrew means righteous. Melchizedek is not his name. It's his throne name. Melech in Hebrew means king. All you Melkites in the room, your ears should be going up. All right. 
The name we receive in Genesis is his throne name. He is the king of righteousness, the righteous king. It was a throne name proper to the kings of Israel, proper to the kings that followed God. Who is the last king or head of the family that we found out in Genesis was a righteous man? Noah. Yeah. Now go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Okay, there you go. Noah was the last righteous king that we heard of. And Noah passed on the headship of his family to which man? To Shem. In chapter 9, verse 20. Blessed be the Lord my God. Blessed by the Lord my God be Shem. And let Canaan be his slave. That is the blessing of a father. It is a blessing reserved to the head of a house to bless his son and to anoint him the priest king of the family. And Shem is the last one in this line that we find is blessed by his father. Shem becomes the righteous king of the Holy Land. And when Abraham returns to that land and is about to be given headship of the family, who does he go to? This strange man who has the same title, the righteous king of the family of God. And by Jewish tradition, Melchizedek has been held to be none other than Shem. And here we have Abraham returning to the Holy Land, to the land of his fathers. He submits himself and receives a fatherly blessing from the only one who could properly give that blessing to him, the head of his own family. Is Shem and Melchizedek the same person? Yes. I say yes. St. Ephraim says yes. It's a pretty consistent in the church fathers and very consistent in Hebrew tradition. Okay, in Jewish tradition. If you follow the years that Shem is alive, according to the Genesis numbers, I challenge you to go and do that. It's, it's kind of fun to do. Um, he actually is alive at this time and lives on into the life of Abraham quite a while. So it would be rightfully his to hand on in his old age. Now, very interesting. Here he is, Melchizedek, king of righteousness and king of king of peace, king of Salem. Okay, as you read there, Melchizedek, king of Salem. Where is Salem? It is the old name for Jerusalem. Yerusalem, king of Salem, king of peace. So there it is. Abraham goes and receives the fatherly blessing from Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem. And that king, who, according to tradition, is his forefather, is living on a mountain, ruling as king, and surrounding that mountain are which people? The Canaanites. And the Canaanites have just gone into revolt. The people that are to be slave of slaves to Shem are encamped in a circle around the king. And instead of serving 
the one who is of the name, they are father like son trying to usurp the throne which is not theirs. Does that all make sense? That's even more interesting when you compare Melchizedek with Christ. More, yes, when more interesting when you compare Melchizedek with Christ. There's all sorts of things there that we could get into and we don't have time. Of course, the bread and wine is obvious. So, what does Abraham do? In chapter 12, verse 8, he receives, we, we read that blessing, okay, and in verse 8, thence he removed to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he tried to make a name for himself. No. He called upon the name of the Lord. Do you see the theme? Okay? Many people will divide the book of Genesis to those that are that the, the old patriarchs and then Abraham, the father of faith, who begins the nation of Israel. Now, from there, we can, we can move forward. Now, all this stuff's old, just ancient world stuff. Not at all. Do you see the two stories, the, the two sections of Genesis could never be divided because it's depend, they're dependent upon each other. In, uh, in, in chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, there are three, three promises that are given. And what are they? Let's go ahead and read verse, chapter 12, verse 1 through 3 again. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go to your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse. And by you all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. Okay, so there's three promises given. That he will receive the land, that his name, or as Scott Hahn interprets that, his dynasty, I think it's it's a fine uh, interpretation because the, the, the one who has the name is the head of the family. He's king. So he will receive a dynasty and through him the world will be blessed. Those uh, three promises are then fulfilled or I should say they are covenanted. They're made part of the covenant of God in three separate chapters in Genesis. Chapter 15, chapter 17, and chapter 22. Why am I saying this to you? Because I don't want you to get lost. I hope that after tonight you guys don't just close up Genesis. Okay? Well, obviously we can't get to everything, and I hope it's a seed by which you'll continue to study it. And so as you'll see in chapter 15, 17, and 22, there are three covenants made based upon the three promises in chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. And in between each one of these covenants, there is something of a fall. Each time God makes a covenant with Abraham, he goes and he either takes a concubine, right? Has a son by her, uh, sends that son off to die in the wilderness, gives him a bottle of water and his mother and says, here, get out of here. Sends him off into the desert to die. And after each one of those, God comes back and calls him back to faith. Asking him to restore that relationship. And as Scott Hahn points out, each one of these covenants is fulfilled. The first one in the Mosaic covenant with Moses as they receive the Holy Land in its fullness. Actually, it doesn't really come to its fullness till the Davidic kingdom. That that kingdom that his name becomes a dynasty upon the earth, 
in the Davidic covenant, and that the whole world is blessed when? In the new covenant. Okay, that through his line, through his children, the whole world will be blessed. So that's a little thing to file away. It kind of helps you put together the text in a good way. In chapter 22, as you see, we are moving forward. Verse 1 through 3. Go ahead. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. Okay. He goes to the mountain of Moriah. Turn to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Go ahead. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where, where the Lord had appeared to David his father, at the place that David had appointed, on the threshing floor of Ornan and Jebusite. Okay. So, going back to, to, uh, to the sacrifice of Isaac. Abraham comes into the Holy Land. He receives that blessing from the king of Salem from the king of Jerusalem, to become head of the family. And then God calls him to sacrifice his son. And so where does he go? To Mount Moriah, which is Jerusalem. Which is Jerusalem. What stands there today? The Dome of the Rock. How many of you have been to Jerusalem? You've got to go if you haven't been to Jerusalem. Life-changing. Why is that building that the Muslims use, why is it called the Dome of the Rock? Solomon, the wise man, huh, built his house upon the rock. Remind you of some things that Jesus talked about? The wise man who builds his house upon the rock? In the middle of Jerusalem, there is a rock, which you can't unfortunately go and see now. I didn't see it because they wouldn't. I tried to convert to Islam. They wouldn't let me to get in. They didn't believe me. There's a rock, okay, which is the foundation stone of the house of the Lord. It is the centerpiece. And for the Jews, and for the Muslims, unfortunately, but for the Jews, it was considered to be the most holy place on earth. It was the center of the Garden of Eden. There's a Hebrew tradition that says this. It is upon this rock that the waters first parted at creation to bring forth the land. It is upon this rock that man was first created in the garden. And it is upon this rock that Abel sacrificed to God. It is upon this rock that Melchizedek offered up his sacrifices. And it is upon this rock that Abraham offered up Isaac and then the ram. And it is upon this rock that Solomon built the temple. It is from this rock that the prayers and sacrifices go up to heaven. And it is this rock which is the capstone to the gates of Hades. What did the Holy One, blessed be He, do? Like a man setting in place the central pole of a tent, He raised His right foot and drove the stone down into the very bottom of the deep and made it the pillar of the earth. Therefore, it is called the spindle stone, for it is the very navel of the earth from which the whole earth is stretched out. And upon this stone is the house of the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? It was a there's Hebrew midrash, you know, there's no author to the text. 
Okay? This gives rise. No, this wasn't something that some guy was making up. Okay? This, is, this is the Hebrew tradition. That in the middle of Jerusalem was the most important place for all the salvific events of salvation history. In fact, it was upon that rock that Christ stood when He entered the temple. Take your son, chapter 22, verse 2. Take your son, your only son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, to Jerusalem, and offer him there as a burnt offering. This is the most holy offering they can offer. A burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the ass. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Does something strike you funny about that text? What's he say? I and the lad will go up the mountain and... We're coming back down. But what has God just told him to go up and do? To sacrifice his son. Turn back to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 11, verse 17. And he received from him back, and this was a symbol. Uh Uh-huh. So why? Why does Abraham say that they're going to return? Because he believed in the resurrection of the dead. St. Ephraim the Syrian says, In two things then Abraham was victorious, that he killed his son, although he did not kill him, and that he believed that after Isaac died, he would be raised up again and would go back down with him. For Abraham was firmly convinced that he who said to him, Through Isaac shall your descendants be named, was not lying. And I have a short text here from the Lenten Triodian that we pray during... Uh, during our services during Lent. Having come to the middle point of the path of the fast that leads to thy precious cross, grant that we may see thy day that Abraham saw and rejoiced when on the mountain he received Isaac back alive as from the tomb. The day which Abraham saw, that Abraham was able to see and believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Delivered from the enemy by faith, May we share in thy mystical supper, calling upon thee in peace, our light and our Savior. Glory to thee. So, Abraham becomes our father of faith for that reason primarily. That he believed in the resurrection before Christ. And he was willing to sacrifice his son with the hope of that resurrection, being an icon of the Father. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Verse 6. Chapter 22, verse 6 of Genesis. Go fast. Both of them together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. 
When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Then Abraham put forth his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. By his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Okay, and provide in the future. will provide is yira, however you want to spell it in our language here. Yira which becomes then tacked on to the ancient name Salem, at which point we end up with Jerusalem. He called the place God will provide. Looking forward, notice, to the future. God has just provided them with a sacrifice. But what did He not provide them with? A lamb. A lamb. The Hebrew people read that text and looked forward to the day when God Himself would provide the Lamb, the Lamb of God. It is not an accident. It is not something that that John the Baptist made up as he stood on the banks of the Jordan River. But when he yelled out, Behold the Lamb of God, those standing next to him would have known exactly what he was saying. St. Ephraim, Then Abraham saw a ram in a tree, took it, and offered it up upon the altar in place of his son. The question that Isaac had asked about the lamb attested the fact that there had been no ram there. The wood that was on Isaac's shoulders proves that there had been no tree there. The mountain, listen to this, the mountain spit out the tree, and the tree a ram. So that in the ram that hung in the tree and had become the sacrifice in the place of Abraham's son, there might be depicted the day of him who was to hang upon the wood like a ram, and was to taste death for the sake of the world. That's why he's a doctor of the church. It is common to look at Isaac as an icon of Christ, and his father as an icon of the father. They make their way up to the mountain, that same mountain that Christ walked up to Calvary. To stand upon that same mountain, to willingly be sacrificed. Notice, Abraham is an old man at this time. Who is the one who has to carry the wood up for the sacrifice? It's Isaac. Which means Isaac was not, you know, you see these ridiculous paintings, little Isaac next to his big father. Not at all. Abraham was the weak one. Abraham was the old man. And his son was strong. Strong enough to carry up enough wood to sacrifice a full-blown human being on. To sacrifice a full-blown ram on. A strong man. And therefore, it would have been necessary for Isaac to also willingly be strapped down for the sacrifice, to willingly undergo that sacrifice at the command of his father. Not what I will, 
but what thou wilt. Oh, one minute. What chapter are we on? 22? Can we do 30 chapters? <laughs> sure we can. Why not? Abraham is the father of? Isaac. Who's Isaac's wife? Rebecca. Rebecca. Isaac and Rebecca is the father of? Jacob. Jacob. Whose wife? Rachel. Rachel and Leah. Who have? Twelve sons. There we go. Fifty, 50 chapters. Or thirty chapters. Look at that. <laughs> no, I just want to point out something quick, and we'll be and we'll be done. Look, friend. I hope, like I said before, a seed. Continue to read this. There's no way. How could you? We could go on honestly for a year or two reading the book of Genesis, studying the book of Genesis. Okay, we've been able to 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 taste little parts of it, but I want you to turn to chapter. Uh, 39. You know the story of Joseph. His brothers become jealous of him. They sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. He's purchased by Potiphar. And in chapter 39, we get a little story that we'll conclude with. Now Joseph was taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard of the Egyptians, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Go ahead. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph found favor in the sight and attended him, and he made him an overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him an overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and having him, he had no concern for anything but the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome and good-looking, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Lo, having me, my master, has no concern about everything in the house, and he has put everything that he has, ha- he has in my hand. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And although, and although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie with her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, he had fled out of the house. She called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought, he has brought among us a Hebrew to insult us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I, and I cried out with a loud voice, and when he cried that I lifted up my voice and, and cried, he left his garment with me and fled and got out of the house. Okay. Who else have we read about that was stripped naked? Before Noah. Adam also was stripped naked through the tempting of a woman. And so on Monday of Holy Week, on Monday of Holy Week, we read this text in our church, and we'll, we'll conclude with this in just a couple, couple thoughts. The serpent, just listen to this. This is why 
the liturgical texts are the primary uh, interpreter of sacred scripture. You listen and you know the liturgy, you know the Bible. The serpent found a second Eve in the Egyptian woman. And with the words of flattery, he sought to make Joseph fall. But leaving his garment behind, Joseph fled from sin. And like the first man before his disobedience, though naked, he was not ashamed. At his prayers, O Christ, have mercy upon us. The serpent found a second Eve in the Egyptian woman, and with words of flattery, he sought to make Joseph fall. But leaving his garment behind him, Joseph fled from sin, and like the first man before his disobedience, though naked, he was not ashamed. At his prayers, O Christ, have mercy upon us. As we read the book of Genesis, as we read the whole Bible, there is one story that is being told. It is a story of God's love for mankind. And it is a story over and over again of God's children turning and walking willingly out of the house of their father. Or, like Joseph, turning and entering back in. The whole story of salvation is that story. Until we come to one man who because of his divine person can never walk out of the presence of God, for He is God Himself, Jesus Christ. And in the New Covenant, we find a relationship which can never again be broken apart. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll do a quick three or four minute Q&A. All right. Yes, Jennifer. This is a bit of a plant. She asked me the question. I said, oh, you got to ask that question. Uh, So, go ahead. So, we talk about the land of exile to the water. east. But liturgically, we offer our sacrifices towards the east. When did this change happen? Okay, she's saying in the, in the scriptures, east becomes that place of exile. And I said earlier that that place, the reason they had to be exiled to the east, there was, there, they couldn't be exiled to the west. Why is that? The Mediterranean Sea, you couldn't go. You, wouldn't, you know, there's nowhere to go. And so they end up being th- thrown out to the east. So it's not that God hates the east, Okay, but that, uh, but that it was the natural place of exile. And in fact, later on, I mean, it's a useful tool at that point in Genesis. But those of you who know your salvation history know that there's three major exiles in the Old Testament. And those exiles are first, well, you could say, okay, hold on. We go Adam and Eve, right, are exiled. Abraham is called back in. Right? So we got, and we have out here in Ur of the Chaldees, right? But then they're exiled to Egypt, down in Egypt, right? Coming out of Jerusalem, heading down to, to, to Egypt. And then they come back in with Moses. And then they head up to Babylon and come back in. So it's not, you know, I mean, it's, it's a useful tool for us here in Genesis is a literary thing. And I, I do believe that it's there to help us understand where this whole thing is taking place. Okay, and in fact, when Melchizedek comes down to bless Abram, where is he going down to bless him? In the valley of? 
the kings, the valley of the kings. The valley of the kings is right there at the base of Jerusalem. Like if you're, if you're in Jerusalem, Jerusalem is not that huge of a city, old, the old city, and you're looking out, the valley of the kings is right down there, and that's exactly where Hezekiah's, Hezekiah's tunnel, where the spring of Siloam flows through. Okay, and you can go walk through that tunnel out because it, down there in the city of David, right? In the Valley of the Kings. So it's right down there at the base of Jerusalem. It's very beautiful. You've got to go to the whole thing. Oh. All right. In the center of the garden was the Tree of Life. Yes. And that we're talking about in the center of Jerusalem, which was also the garden, mm-hmm. uh, is sure. the rock. Mm-hmm. How is the tree growing in the rock? Uh-huh. That's a good, it's a good question. For the Jews, the, the rock is more than what is just showing right there. Okay? Um, the, the whole mountain of Jerusalem is considered, I mean, if you see that, the big face of that rock, and imagine the rock, it's not like when it goes into the dirt, it's just cut off on its sides, right? It is the foundation stone of the whole, of the whole mountain. Okay? And so, you know, where the tree is growing, exactly how it was growing, was it, you know, what, I don't know if the Jews say anything about that, whether after the flood, I don't know. But more important than that, more important than that is this. That what St. Ephraim is saying, what he's pointing out, more importantly than the, the historical narrative and how, how much symbolism is there versus whatever, not, not at all. He, what he's concerned about us understanding is that wherever God dwells, there is paradise. And there we're going to see this, this paradigm of salvation taking place. In the, in the temple in Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies. And in the center of the Holy of Holies. First of all, what's guarding the way into the Holy of Holies? Yeah, the angels. God tells them, place two cherub there as the entryway. Big 30-foot ch- uh, statues of angels. Take that, Protestants. Sorry, friends that are Protestant here. You might think about that, though, next time you attack a Catholic on it. God commands them to carve statues of things of heaven above. And you've got to go past those angels through the gate, right? And in the center of the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant holds the things of God, the closest that man could come to God himself. And in fact, the scriptures say that it, when the priest entered the Holy of Holies once a year, and he bowed down to the ground, he spoke with God and audibly heard the words of God coming to him from the, top, from the, the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Here they encountered the word of God Jesus Christ. And he entered into the high priest, okay, and shared in that covenant relationship himself with man. And this is the point that in the midst of the Garden of Eden is the most important thing the tree of life from which man would come and eat and live forever, okay? And it's by no accident that in the midst of our church stands the holy altar. And on that altar, from that altar, we receive the precious body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Word of God received into our soul. This is nothing new. This was the plan of God in the beginning. Okay? And as a side note, the, uh, the priests, when they entered in, had to wear... Do you know what they had to wear upon them? 
Yeah, besides the bells. They had, they had to wear the ephod, this breastplate, in which the Jews say that within, actually it's in the scriptures, I think, where it says, was, was hidden the wisdom of God by which they discerned good from evil. Okay? And so they, they had within them, upon them, that ability to enter in that. It's, it's a side note, whatever, you guys are not interested in that. One of those things I get off on, but... Okay. Yes. Actually, the reason why we face east in our prayer is based more in the rising of the sun. Okay? That for the Jews, they faced toward Jerusalem because it was the place, the location in which God met them. Okay? But when Christ rose from the dead... He became the place where God met with man. And the early Christians knew that the whole of the created order was meant to be a revelation of God himself. And therefore, they were accustomed to waking up early and turning and facing toward the rising sun to get up early for the divine liturgy, okay, and say their prayers always facing toward the rising sun. Not because they worshipped the sun, but because they saw in it a symbol of the risen Lord, always reminding them and keeping their focus toward the kingdom to come. And so, Christian churches have always, always been built facing the east. If you take out a compass and you walk into that church, that church faces east. And the priest, when he stands at the altar also faces east. And those of you of the older generation will remember the old days when the priest turned his back to you when he was at the altar, right? Wrong. The priest never in the history of the Catholic Church has turned his back on you. No more than you turn your back on the person that is in the pew behind you. You are together with the priest marching toward the kingdom to come toward the risen Christ. It was an act of humility that the priest turned with you and looked toward the kingdom to come. Okay? He was not on a stage. It was not important that you saw his face. It was important that you saw the face of the Lord. Okay? Any other last minute questions? Fantastic. All right. God bless you guys, and uh, thank you very much.